Well, good morning. Hope everybody is doing well. I am so excited to be here, and I, I honestly cannot put into words just how truly excited I am. I have been looking forward to this day for a long time. From the moment that John and I were talking, and he told me that God was calling him and his family to plant a church here in Salisbury, I could not wait for the day that I would receive the phone call where he said, will you please come share a message? And so I am ecstatic right now. And as John said, my name is Tom, and just to tell you a little bit about myself, I've been married to my beautiful bride, Leah, for 18 years, which is crazy, I know, right? That's good. I know you're thinking right now, how is it possible someone so young as you could be married 18 years? And all I'm going to say is I believe in young love. The Bible teaches young love. That's it. That's all I'll say about that. I'm not going to give away my age. But we have been married 18 years, been on an amazing journey together. We have two beautiful teenage daughters. My oldest, Denise, is a rising senior in high school. So the whole college visits and applications, that whole process has started. And so I know the next year is going to be extremely busy in our house. And then our baby, Hannah, she is a rising freshman in high school. And so We've got two daughters in high school, which is hard for me to even wrap my brain around. And they actually both went here. And so I was thinking, this has got to be a weird experience for them, right? <laughs> they're back in their school, only this time their dad's teaching. Like, they're probably going to have a panic attack today. But they both went here, and, I, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. And as Pastor John said, he truly is one of my best friends in my life. And I believe in providential relationships. That is a relationship that God orchestrated. And John and his wife, Jess, they are that for me. We moved here about 10 years ago for my job from Greensboro. And so we didn't know anybody to move from Greensboro to the big town of Rockwell, North Carolina. I was like, what is going on? Like it was a culture shock. And so we didn't know anybody. We started searching for churches and uh, one day we went to a church and there was this guy up on stage preaching. He looked like he was about 15. And I'm like, there's no way that guy's old enough to be a pastor. Well, that was Pastor John. And so he's a couple years younger than me, but he, we started talking, started getting to know each other. And one day he said, hey, Tom, would you like to uh, come to my life group? And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but no thank you. Like, that just sounds weird. I'm a busy guy. I work in Mooresville. I'm trying to raise a family. I don't need to do anything else. And so the next week he said, hey, Tom, would you like to come to my life group? And I'm like, no, is the answer is the same. But he would not quit asking. Every single week he would ask if I would come to his life group. And I'm like, I don't even know what a life group is. Like, do you just sit around in a circle and hold hands and sing Kumbaya? What, what is this thing about? He said, just trust me, just come. And I said, I'll tell you what, if you promise to stop asking, I will come one time. He said, fair enough. So I showed up at the life group and I honestly did not know what to expect. And so I walk in, I realize there's a bunch of people about the same age, same lifestyle, uh, as far as pursuing a career, raising a family. And I'm like, as best I can tell, I don't see any weirdos in here. So let's give this a shot. And so we ate together, we prayed together, we dug into God's word together. And I thought, well, this is actually kind of cool. And then after we finished praying, I said, well, I guess it's time to go. And John said, no, 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 no. It is definitely not time to go. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, it's time to play some basketball. <laughs> now, listen, I, I did 
not like that idea, okay? Because I am like an ultra competitive guy. And the idea of playing basketball with a bunch of dudes from church just seemed like a disaster waiting to happen. Like, I don't know if I'll be able to contain myself. And so I'm like, all right, bro, you asked for it. Let's go. And so we go out to the basketball court, i.e. his driveway. And so the basketball game starts. And I mean, almost immediately right out of the gate, I catch an elbow right to the head. And I'm like, whoa, what just happened? And I open my eyes. And I realized it was my pastor who threw a forearm and hit me in the head. And I'm like, can you do that? And then he looks back at me. He's got this weird look in his eye and he's got this weird smile. And he starts talking trash to me. And he says, you like that? Come get some more. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Now, that, that is a true story. And I mean this when I say that moment was a pivotal moment in my life. I'm serious. Well, first it knocked some sense into my head, but that truly was a pivotal moment because it was in that moment a friendship started to develop. And I realized, I don't know what I thought prior to that. Maybe you put a pastor up on a pedestal. I think we're all guilty of that at some point. And I realized in that moment, the more and more I got to know John, he is just a normal guy. He's a very, very smart guy. We've done ministry together, but he's just a normal guy who is ultra competitive, just like me, who's trying his best to lead a church, to lead his family. He really doesn't carry goods in his way on the basketball court, but he's just a normal guy who loves God with all of his heart and loves pointing people to Jesus Christ. And that was a pivotal moment in my life. And so I can tell you that other than my mom, there is nobody that I know that it's had more influence on my spiritual growth and development. He has challenged me along the way more than anybody else I know. And I am forever grateful for both John and his family, Jess and their kids. And we have talked many, many times. We have a great relationship. We have a very transparent relationship. We talk about all kinds of things. And one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty standing up here today is that John and his wife, Jess, love you guys so much. They love y'all so much. They think about y'all and this church more than you could ever imagine. I can tell you this, they do not want this to just simply be a place that you get together on the weekends and gather, but they want this to be a movement for Christ in this community to help change lives, to truly be the hands and feet of God in this city, in this county, and to radically change it for the name of Jesus Christ. And so I hope you guys are on board for that because I promise there's big things in store for the people sitting in this room right now. God, if you will allow him, will use you in mighty, mighty ways. Well, I am excited about today. As John said, you guys are starting a brand new teaching series called Summer School, which is fitting, right? Since we're in a school. And, um, and this series is on doctrine. And doctrine is simply a belief system. What is it that you believe? And so for three weeks, we are gonna tackle some of the foundational truths for the Christian faith. What are some of the things that we need to know and need to understand and be able to defend with the Christian faith. And so that is the whole premise behind this. But it is so important that we understand truth. 
particularly in this society where there are so many competing ideas. Right here in Rowan County, there are a lot of different religions, and I'll call them cults, that sound an awful lot like Christianity. They use the same terminology as is what's found in scripture, but there is a totally different meaning behind what they are teaching. And so it is so important that we can understand and discern truth from a lie. And so that's the whole concept behind this. This idea of can't we all just get along and we'll pick whatever path we want and in the end we'll, we'll all just get to where we want to go. That's, that is a common thought out there. That's a common thought for people even in churches, Christian churches. You've seen the bumper sticker, coexist. And it spells coexist with all the little different symbols from other religions. And I used to think that was cute. Not anymore. That bumper sticker scares me. It scares me. Because if we believe what we believe is really true, and I do, and I believe more of my wife's favorite saying, she says, absolute truth is absolute truth whether you want to believe it or not. And if we believe what we believe is really true, and I do, all roads can't lead to the same place. If they did, then Jesus would be a liar. And I don't believe Jesus is a liar because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus was all about truth. He was all about pointing people towards truth, which was pointing them to himself. But Jesus was teaching one day. He was sharing the good news with somebody and they tried to distract and they were asking things like we ask, hey, where are we supposed to worship? Now, we get lost in the weeds sometimes. Can we have school or church in a school? Is that, does this even count right now as church? Or does church have to be in a, a traditional church with a steeple and stained glass windows? And Jesus said, let me tell you, there is coming a time, indeed the time is now, that you worship the Father in both spirit and in truth. Truth is so crucial. And so we are going to look at a few foundational truths in this series and it's so easy to get distracted and if we don't know what our foundational truths are we can easily fall for a lie and I got to tell you this is not just a problem right now even though it happens every single day this is a problem that goes back as far as you want to go back the very first century church right out of the gate they were already fallen for lies and deceptions. And these are, this is the first century church that was here right after Jesus was here on this earth. And they started believing a false doctrine. And so the apostle Paul, if you know who Paul is, an amazing story. The apostle Paul was, he was a religious leader, a Pharisee. And he says he was the most zealous of all the Pharisees. And so he spent the early part of his life chasing down followers of Jesus, chasing down Christians and even participated in having them killed or having them arrested and, and persecuted until one day he had a personal encounter with a holy God and Jesus flipped him on his head basically and radically changed his life. And the rest of Paul's life, he spent it just becoming the greatest missionary ever to walk this earth. And Paul is the one who wrote almost half of the New Testament that we have today. And so he was an amazing teacher pointing people to truth. And he saw a problem because so many people were falling for lies. And Paul wrote this to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul issues a very clear warning. He says, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Paul says, you happily 
put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one that we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one that you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one that you believed. Paul says you happily put up with this, and you got to know what truth is, or you're going to fall for this lie. And so that is what this entire series is about, doctrinal truths. And so when John asked me to preach, he said, hey, I want you to lead off the series. I'm like, sweet. What do you want me to preach on? He goes, oh, you know, uh, if you could just go ahead and tackle the doctrine of the Trinity, that would be fantastic. And I was like, <laughs> and then I realized he was being serious. And I'm like, oh my mercy. And you remember when he elbowed me in the head, I immediately wanted to return the favor. I want to whack him one good time in the head. I'm like, that is sweet. You want me to teach on maybe the most complex doctrine of our entire faith. Well, that is fantastic, John. I thought we were friends, but I'll tell you this. I have had more fun over the last couple of weeks preparing for this message because it is so complex. It is so difficult to understand that the last two weeks I've just spent it digging into God's word saying, God, what are you like? What are you like? Show yourself to me. And so I challenge you, I'm going to be flying through scripture today, giving a lot of scriptural references, write down the references, and then go back and do the same thing. Poke at them. Say, God, what do you like? Show yourself to me. Because right out of the gate, I want you to know that I do not claim to be an expert on the Trinity. But I say that, I don't think anybody has complete comprehension of the doctrine of the Trinity. But what I do know is what Scripture says about it. And so today we are going to point to Scripture. We're going to see what it says. And we are going to be able to defend one of the most foundational truths of our faith. So first of all, what is the Trinity? Well, here's a definition of the Trinity. Within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are worthy of the same worship, confidence, and obedience. And so today, I want you to think about two words in that. First, being. That's singular. Second, persons. That is plural. So one God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. How does that work? Well, I believe that there are a few truths that we need to talk about based on this definition of the Trinity Three truths that I want us to understand today. And by the way, I apologize, man. These front couple rows, y'all in the spit zone. Y'all need like whatever that comedian, you had like plastic covering you, but you don't. And so you might get wet. So it is what it is. Three truths about the Trinity. Truth number one, there is only one God. Truth number one, there is only one God. And I know that right now some of y'all are thinking, that is profound, Tom. That is amazing. We came here today for you to tell us there is only one God. Well, I can tell you that is a unique message, that there is one God who is eternal, who spoke and creation came into existence. That is a very, very unique message. There are beliefs right here in this community that do not believe that. They will say, yes, there's a God, but God was once a man and there were gods before him and gods before him and gods before him. And if you play your cards right, one day you too can become a God. 
So it is a foundational truth. Scripture teaches us that there is only one God. We have to understand that. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, and again, write these scripture references down. God speaking. God says, I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. God says there is only one God and I am him. Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Now, can we agree that God is all-knowing, right? So God is all-knowing. But then in Isaiah 44, 18, God asks a question. And just to tell you, it's a rhetorical question. God says, is there any other God? No. I have searched high and low. I have searched everywhere. There is only one God. Jesus himself claims that there is only one God. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, and Jesus says, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the one and only Lord. He was quoting from Deuteronomy. Later in Deuteronomy, it says, there is only one God from the heavens to the earth. There is only one God. It might seem obvious, but that is not a common belief. Foundational truth number one, there is only one God. Foundational truth number two, there are three different persons who are called God. Now, this is where it starts to get kind of trippy. This is where the more you dig into Scripture, the more you end up scratching your head. And you're like, what is going on here? There are three different persons who are called God. And so you, you hold firm to that foundational truth. And you're like, yes, there's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. And you come to church and you're like, finally, you know what? I'm going to start digging into God's word. I'm going to see what it says. And so you go home and you open up your Bible and you start in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and right out of the gate, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us... Make human beings in our image. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, there's only one God, there's only one God, there's only one God. Open up the book, let us, plural, make human beings in our, plural, image, singular. I'm like, what just happened? Like, what is going on here? Who is God talking to? Who is he talking to? Well, in the Trinity, there are three persons who are all co-equal and co-eternal sharing the same essence, that is, that they are fully God, and that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Father, because if someone believes that there is, in fact, a God, they don't really dispute God the Father. But the number one thing that people attack with the Christian faith and the doctrine of the Trinity is the essence of Jesus, that he is the eternal God. R.C. Sprouls, who's a pastor and an apologist. An apologist is just someone who defends the faith. In one of his lectures, he was once asked, what do you see as the biggest challenge to the church of America over the next 25 to 50 years? And his response was, the biggest challenge he sees facing the church is the deity of Christ. That is the divine nature of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact fully God the eternal God. He said it is the number one thing, challenge, he sees facing us over the next few decades and therefore the doctrine of the Trinity. Therefore the doctrine of the Trinity. 
different religions right around here. You might get a knock on your door one day. You open the door, hand you a little pamphlet, watchtower, start talking to you. They start using terms that sound an awful lot like what we read in Scripture. I can tell you, right out of the gate, you can ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the eternal God? No, no, they don't. And so they're going to come at you with different truths. And so if we're going to defend that Jesus is, in fact, the eternal God, we need to know where to look. And I believe if you're going to defend that Jesus is, in fact, the holy God, the eternal God, one of the persons of the Trinity, that you start that defense in the Old Testament. Start in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Keep in mind, Isaiah was written over 700 years before Jesus came to this earth. It was written over 700 years before Jesus was here on earth. Isaiah chapter 9, prophesying, says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called, watch this, prophesying about Jesus, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, mighty God is El Gabor. That is an exclusive name given to the eternal God in the Old Testament. But it prophesies Jesus will be called El Gabor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And then the verse goes on and says that his kingdom will never end. Just a plug for next week, Pastor John is talking about the kingdom of God a foundational truth to our faith. It says his kingdom will never end. He is the father of eternity. All right, so one God, one God, only one God. And then right there, Isaiah is prophesying that the one who is coming is El Gabor, the mighty God. He is the eternal God. In Micah chapter five, verse two, it says that a child is coming and you know this because we sing about it every year. A child is coming and he will be born in a specific place. That place is Bethlehem and he will rule. And it says that his origins are from old. Yes, even from eternity's past. Referring to Jesus, he is the eternal God. So many places in the Old Testament that prophesy the coming of Christ, the eternal, mighty God. Then you go to the New Testament, and the New Testament authors, they call Jesus God. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, the author writes, We look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. They call Jesus God. That's a big deal. Old Testament, New Testament, all refer to Jesus as the eternal God. But then Jesus, he does things that only God does, or we're told. He receives worship. Jesus receives worship. And this is a big deal because throughout Scripture, we are told that you are only to worship God. In Revelation, John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, he sees the angel and he falls at the angel's feet to worship the angel. And the angel's like, whoa, whoa, bro, what are you doing? Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Only worship the one true God. Jesus even said that himself before his ministry began. He was in the wilderness. And while he was in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. And one of the things that Satan tempted Jesus with, Satan said, if you bow at my feet and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms 
of this world. And what did, what did Jesus say to Satan? He said, get out of here, Satan, for the scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and only serve him. So Jesus says you do not worship anyone other than God, but yet Jesus received worship. Thomas, who's referred to as Doubting Thomas, after Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Thomas was with the other disciples, and Thomas said, have we done the right thing? Have, is Jesus who he says he is? I, I just don't know if I can get on board. I'm going to have to see the resurrected Jesus. I'm going to have to put my hands in his wounds, in his flesh, and there appears Jesus, and Thomas looks at our risen Savior, and Thomas says this, my Lord and my God. And Jesus receives it. He receives it. Jesus did things that, that only God can do. He portrayed the attributes of God. Jesus did things that only God could do. Think about it. Jesus forgives sins. Who can forgive sins? God. And, and people would see Jesus forgive sins and it would make him infuriated. They, they're like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, yes. But Jesus forgave sins. Jesus raised people from the dead. That's pretty impressive. Jesus told the paralyzed man to get up, grab your mat and walk. And the guy was like, "Woo!" He grabbed his mat and he walked out. Who can do that? Jesus made the blind see. Jesus even had control over his own creation. He walked on water. Jesus walks on water. There's one account where they're in a boat. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. And keep in mind, these disciples, these were like, these were manly men, right? They spent, a lot of them spent their time fishing and doing stuff that I don't want to do, man. That's disgusting, right? But if you spend your time on the water and boats, and that's how you make your living, these guys don't scare easily. And one thing, if you're a fisherman, you're used to storms coming up on your boat. Well, this one particular account, this storm comes up, and it is a gnarly storm because the disciples are freaking out. They're like, holy God, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're all going to die, and we're going to drown right here. And if you read Scripture, it says Jesus is just sleeping, just chilling. He's just sleeping. And so they're like, we're about to die. This boat's going down. Somebody wake Jesus up. And so they run over like, Jesus, wake up. We're about to die. And Jesus wakes up calmly. Shh. He quiets the storm. Who can have control over his own creation? God. Only God. And yet time and time again, we see Jesus distribute the attributes that only God can do. That's an amazing thing. But Jesus himself called himself God. This is a big deal. Jesus is teaching his people. They're referring to Abraham. Abraham is someone you read about in the Old Testament. Key figure in Scripture. Jesus looks at the people as they're talking. He says, before Abraham was I am. That's a big deal. He just called himself God. 
I am. And when he said that, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. The name I am references the name of the eternal God. That is the name that God gave to Moses. Moses, key figure in the Old Testament as well. When God told Moses to go to the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses hears God say that and say, you want to use me? God, I can't even speak. I have a stuttering problem. God, you need to figure out somebody else to do this, not me. And Moses realizes, I guess he's not going to find somebody else. So you want me to go to the most powerful man in the world and tell him to let millions of slaves go? That's his livelihood. This sounds like a suicide mission, but just for the fun of it, who exactly do you want me to tell him sent me? And God said, you tell him that I am sent you. And so when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was calling himself the eternal God, the one who has always been. And the people could not believe what they had just heard. This man, you're saying you, you were here before Abraham, you're only 30 some years old. How, can, how is that possible? And you just called yourself God, the eternal God? And they were infuriated, they were enraged. And the Bible says they picked up stones to kill Jesus. This is one of my favorite accounts. There is a mob of people enraged at what what Jesus just said. He just called himself God. That is blasphemy. And so Jesus, there by himself, a mob of men, all with stones in their hands, got Jesus dead to rights. It's time to go. We're about to kill him for blasphemy. And the scripture says, he just walked away. What? Like, how does that happen? Like, that's the kind of thing I read. I'm like, how do you do that? You got a mob of people. They're wanting to kill you. Jesus just walked away. And I just like picture that. Like, I, I want to know how that's possible. Like, did they pick up the stones and they go to throw them at Jesus and like their arm just didn't work and they were like. <laughs> but Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. Jesus was going to lay down his life for us on a cross. He was not going to get taken out by a mob of angry men because he claimed to be God and he is God. Who can do that? God. Jesus is the eternal God. How about the Holy Spirit? You see, the Holy Spirit, I believe that he doesn't get much love. He's a forgotten person of the Trinity. And this is one that, you know, I don't think people mean to do it, and I might do it here in the next couple minutes, but often the Holy Spirit, he's referred to as an it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Holy Spirit is a person. But people be like, I've received it. You received what? It. <laughs> what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He. Fully God. Just like Jesus. Just like God the Father. In, in Acts chapter 5, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, they... They lied about their giving, so just for the record, be careful about what you give or whatever, however you handle that. That's up to you. But Acts chapter 5, you read, they lied about their giving, and all of a sudden, they fell over dead. But what did Peter say? Peter said, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter said, what, what they sold and what they gave, that was completely on them. They could do whatever they wanted with that. But they did not lie to man 
He said they lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he followed that up. He did, they did not lie to man. They lied to God. The Holy Spirit right there called God. Jesus in John chapter, I, here's some homework for you. Read John chapters 14 through 16. Three chapters. It's not a very long homework assignment, but what you will see multiple times in this is Jesus teaching and praying, and you will see all three persons of the Trinity in this scripture. It's an amazing passage of scripture. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, there's God the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He, not it, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. There you see all persons of the Trinity, Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and he will send another advocate in my name, and he, the Holy Spirit, will lead you and guide you into all truth. That's a big deal. You see all three persons of the Trinity. And this is, this is amazing. Later in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus speaking to his followers actually says to them, it is better that I leave so that the helper, the advocate comes. Now think about what Jesus said there. Because if you could have anybody who has ever walked this earth be a member of your congregation, be a part of your church, who would you choose? I'm like, Billy Graham, you're the man. I'm going with Jesus, right? You're up here preaching, somebody falls out. Jesus will take care of it, <sighs> whatever. I mean, Jesus, if you could pick anybody, it would be Jesus. And Jesus says, it is better that I leave because when I leave, I'm sending the helper and that is the Holy Spirit. A great quote by J.D. Greer. I love this quote. He said, the only thing better than Jesus walking beside you is the Holy Spirit living within you. That's a strong quote. And Jesus says he will never leave us. He will guide us into all truths. That's an amazing thing. And so there are three persons who are called God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've got to be able to defend those truths. And then finally, there are three persons of the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal. Co-equal and co-eternal couple of quick scriptures, really cool examples of when you see this. Right at the very, very beginning of the Bible, you open up Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And watch this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surfaces of the water. Right there at the very first, very first verse of the entire Bible, we see the Holy Spirit right there at creation. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And then what about Jesus? Is Jesus eternal? John chapter one, verse one is a great verse. If you're talking to somebody, knocks on your door, do you believe that, that Jesus is the eternal God? Well, I don't know about that. Point them to John chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. And the, the Greek word for beginning there means go back as far as you want. There is no starting point. Just keep going, referring to eternity, which is something our finite brains can't fully comprehend. But in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. 
the word there is referring to Jesus because if you keep reading in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, So the word became human and made his home among us. The word is Jesus. And it says the word was with God and the word was God. And he was there in the beginning. Jesus is eternal. And all three persons of the Trinity, they're co-equal as well. And I love when you think about the Trinity and who God is. And you think about the gospel, which gospel means good news. That is why we do what we do to point people to God, to let them know forgiveness available to them through Jesus. The gospel in and of itself, when you look at it, is a beautiful display of the Trinity. Think about it. God the Father, he sets the standard, which is perfection. And God the Father, he is the one who will judge all sin. But his standard is perfection. That's a problem. He's a holy God. He can't be with anything that's not perfect. But that's a problem for you and me because we are far from perfect. Chances are, if you're like me, you've already messed up today. I mess up all the time. And all it takes is one time to not be perfect. And we can't be in the presence of a holy God. God the Father sets the standard. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the answer to our sin problem. He is the answer. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He loves us so much, he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He's the only person that's ever lived a sinless life and the only reason he could do it is because he is God. And he lived a perfect life. And then it says he laid down his life for us on a cross. Theologians call that, that's where the great exchange happened. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of my sin. And I cannot imagine how heavy the weight of just my sin was. But he had all of your sin too. And he had all of the sin of every single person who has ever lived or ever will live. And he took it upon himself and he made the great exchange. He gave us his perfection for our brokenness so that when the holy God who judges looks down on us, he doesn't see our brokenness. He sees the blood of Jesus and his perfection. And we're in, we enter into a, a perfect relationship with the Holy God. How about God, the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is drawing us to himself. He's drawing us. And we feel that. What is that? He's drawing us to truth. And then the moment we accept what Jesus did for us on the cross and we say, I can't do this on my own, Jesus. I need forgiveness. I'm in need of a Savior. Wham! Right then, the Holy Spirit seals our faith. And then Jesus says for the rest of our lives, he leads us and he guides us in spirit and in truth. All three persons of the Trinity are active. They wanted to be active in our salvation and they are. Maybe you ask a question. I've been asked the question. I know John has. Well, how do I even know if I'm saved? How do you know if you're saved? Do you see evidence of it in your life? Because Scripture tells us that we will produce fruit. Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into all truth, and we will produce fruit. Think about different times. We were talking yesterday. Times going into meetings. Let me tell you, I struggle. I have a very short fuse. People say, I don't understand why they say that. It's weird. But there are times where I go into certain meetings, and I know it's about to be on. It is going to be on. I say, God, I need you to Fill me with the Holy Spirit and let him lead and guide in all truth. Watch my tongue. And you leave the meeting, you realize 
There's no way I could have done that on my own. That's evidence of the Spirit in your life. Or times where where you say, oh my gosh, right now I'm so tempted to do something. I should not do this. I'm so tempted. Well, Scripture tells us there is no temptation too great for God's power for us not to be able to overcome it. And you say, God, there's no way I can overcome this temptation right now. And you're like, please give me the strength to do it. And all of a sudden, you overcome the temptation. And that's fruit, evidence of fruit, the Holy Spirit in your life. And I can tell you, if your life is producing fruit and evidence of the Holy Spirit, stop questioning your salvation. Just walk in the Spirit as He leads you and as He guides you. And I understand that the doctrine of the Trinity, it it can be hard to understand. I get that. But this is a foundational truth that we must be able to defend at some level. And while it is difficult to understand or fully comprehend, I want you to know this, that it is not the lack of complete understanding or comprehension of a doctrine that condemns. It's the denial of it that does. There's not a person in this room that fully grasps and comprehends it completely. But it is not the lack of fully comprehending or understanding the doctrine that condemns. It is the denial of it. And so maybe you're wondering, why does this matter, Tom? At the end of the day, it's foundational truth. But why does this matter? I believe one of the greatest reasons it matters is we are called, if you call yourself a Christian, which means you bear the name of Jesus Christ, then we are called to be on mission. We are not simply called to gather together once a week on the weekends. Not what we're called to do. We are called to be on mission. And we are to be on mission pointing people to God. That is what we're supposed to do. But if we're on mission to point people to God, my question is, who are you pointing them to? Who are you pointing them to? So if we're supposed to point people to God, we need to know who we're pointing them to. And so my challenge to you, dig into God's word. Go back into those scripture references this week. And I want you to say the same thing I did. God, who are you? You want me to point people to you? Who are you? Show yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. And then we can walk with a confidence with the Holy Spirit guiding us like we've never had before. And I promise that through his power, not our own, we will do great things in this community. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. The doctrine of the Trinity, God, it is such a complex doctrine, but It is so foundational. And so I just pray right now, Heavenly Father, that if there is somebody in this room that today has been drawn to you by the Holy Spirit and they realize that today they have never started a personal relationship with you, God, that today would be the day. Today would be the greatest day of their life. And just where they are right now, just to themselves, Lord, that they will just say that they are in need of a Savior, that they realize they can't do it on their own, and that today is the day that they say yes and accept you, Jesus, for what you did for us on the cross. And God, I pray, anybody just said that prayer right now, they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I pray they walk out of here with a brand new 
understanding that they don't have to walk alone. God, for those of us who have called ourselves Christians for many, many years, I pray that today is just an amazing reminder that while our finite brains will never fully comprehend how awesome you are, that's cool because you are an awesome God. And God, I pray that you'll give us the strength to live our lives as such. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.